Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. It is another half an hour of science. My name is Chris and look, as you all know, I'm a bit of an extreme sports fan. Oh yeah. Oh yep. yeah, the most extreme. Um, that's yeah. ever news the to extremist. Me. Oh yeah, look, Chris. it's um, it, you probably wouldn't have noticed because Danger. It's, it's not really Chris obvious. I know. Danger, yeah, that's, right. that's you. That's true. So yeah, of course, I was really interested when we had recently um, a bloke in America jumped out of a plane without a parachute. Yeah, and I heard about safely. that. Yeah, so in um, a net. In a He's net of crazy. all things. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So he said in his uh you know, in one of his interviews that oh look it's just do just do the maths, do the physics, it's all it's all fine. And so I thought we're a science program, let's do the maths. <laughs> and oh jeez, so yeah. We're gonna look and see how it actually wasn't that difficult. After the speed all. at which I splatter yeah. against the sidewalk. <laughs> like Yep. Do the math. Yeah. <laughs> like Manisha, what have you got for us? I'm gonna be talking about Speed stuff too, and how quickly the tectonic plates are moving, and mm. and in particular Australia and where we're going, oh. all the places we are traveling. Yeah. Mm. So um, everyone's going on a holiday. Yeah, just we're going on a really and long trip. Holiday. <laughs> <laughs> holiday. Oh well, that's um, that's really interesting. You guys are talking about sport and uh, and movement? you know speed <laughs> and movement because. In the lead up to the Rio Olympics, I thought um, I would talk a little bit about or maybe just investigate a little bit about what the hell is going on with all the drug cheats. Especially like, I mean, because there's news recently about Russia, the athletics team being kicked out because um, they are being... Yeah, Sneaky. being drug cheats. Yep, <laughs> being drug cheats. So yeah, and 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 so how do they do it, and um, how do they get away with it, and what's the science of it, and what does that actually do? So I'm going to be talking oh, to Dr. Oliver Jones, who's um, a lecturer in applied chemistry, and um, has some really interesting stories about drugs and sport. Right. Um, so I'm going to be talking to a little bit to him cool. about that. Yeah. Anything okay? Speed, yeah. movement, earth shattering. That is lost in science for this week. Yay! On with the show. Yes, you're listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris, and I am talking about uh, Daredevil. I guess we can say that Luke Aikens, Aikens, uh, who skydove. Um, from 7.6 kilometers and landed safely without a parachute. 7.6 kilometers in a net. Yeah, 7.6 kilometers. Um, I'm trying to find out why he actually went that high. I have some ideas. I haven't been able to get a, a, a good answer on that because that is quite high for a skydive. Um, but uh, what it was he was he trying to break a record? Is that well, why he went I so think high? the fact that he skydove without a parachute. Yeah, was that was that was right. So record, yeah. I mean, but couldn't he have done that at a couple of kilometers? Yeah, yeah. no one's ever done that before. I, I'm not sure because to me it made, didn't make much sense because he has to obviously hit his his net. But um, you know, maybe mm. it's the reason is like there was some there was some um, controversy beforehand whether they're going to let him actually jump without a parachute at all, whether he doesn't have like a parachute for emergency purposes, which is going to off his whole balance and this kind of thing. Uh, and then they allowed him to get away with that because of the height. So it's quite possibly that if it was lowered down, maybe there's less time to 
fix something that goes wrong or you know because he's with he jumped out with some helpers who had parachutes and maybe the idea was that if something went wrong with him that they could grab him and i don't know i'm not sure what the reason is i will research that i'll try and get an answer anyway so yeah he jumped out of a plane without a parachute this is like the remarkable thing we shouldn't perhaps um ignore that simple fact uh but look when you look into the the what actually happened there the science of it, if you will you know it isn't doesn't become that remarkable because after all it is not the fall that kills you it's it's the the sudden stop at the end and so it's managing that sudden stop that is that is the key part so he was moving quite fast when he was falling quite quite clearly he was moving at the aptly named terminal velocity um terminal velocity you know what that is yes what is that very fast <laughs> very fast movement downwards it is, but why is it terminal? <laughs> is it like the fastest you can go? Yeah, yeah. So it's when the um, when the force of gravity that's I pulling you down things. is balanced out against the drag force and cool. the air pushing back up. So for a human doing that kind of spread eagle skydive thing, it's around about two hundred kilometers an hour, roughly. Oi, mama! I would not want to be heading towards yeah. the Earth at two hundred kilometers an hour without a parachute. No, well. Yeah, we'll I get to that. Not, we'll get to that. Especially if he's only got seven of those kilometers. Oh my to god! Work with. <laughs> well, it took a, took a couple of minutes for him to get down there. What? But yeah, so like so, two hundred kilometers now. He's going roughly. Um, actually, one hundred ninety-three kilometers specifically is what they reported that he was moving at. I mean, it is possible to go fast if like you you pull your your arms in and you you dive straight down. Um, we call that pin jumping. Pin jumping, do we? <laughs> I don't know. You know when you like dive off a diving board and you like just do a pin jump. I yeah, it was okay. a pencil. Oh, it's a pencil jump. Uh, maybe, oh, yeah. maybe. I don't know. Um, don't ask me things. You might remember um, Felix Baumgartner, the um, other bloke who jumped off a very high balloon and broke the sound barrier <laughs> going fast enough. Oh, so, wow. yeah, so it's possible to make yourself go faster pulling around and being, being streamlined. But generally, if you're kind of spread eagled, you know, the way the wind will get you, you get about 200 kilometers an hour. Um, so, yeah. Now, as I said, it's the sudden stop at the end, though, not the speed in particular. It's, the, it's how basically how quickly you decelerate. So the, the faster you decelerate, the more stress is going to be on your body and the more damage is going to be done. In terms of their speed itself, like we know that, for instance, getting hit by a hard object, say a car, at about 50 kilometers an hour is enough to do a lot of damage to you. Um, but, you know, we have now ways of slowing down that kind of that impact. And when you're in a passenger in a car, you have things like the crumple zones and you have airbags to make sure you don't come to a sudden oh, stop. Yeah. You know, it absorbs the impact and makes you your actual your deceleration, your deceleration yeah is reduced. And so it is possible to survive collisions at higher speeds. So we yeah. have the technology. In principle, it should be possible. So you want to be able to slow down over a long period of time. That's right. Yes, yeah, right. Now, so we're going to do some maths. Um, to try and figure out what exactly happened here. Now, the maths isn't terribly complicated, but we're doing it over the radio. So, uh, yeah, Get this could be interesting. Get your pens and yeah. paper. Oh. And if you're driving, <clears throat> just, uh, just, just visualise. Yeah, just visualise, visualise. Just, just visualise. Don't visualise crashing. Okay. So, like I said, he was, um, he was moving 193 kilometres an hour, uh, which is 53.6 metres per second. We'll convert everything to metres and seconds because it's easier. Okay. I will take your word for yep. that. Yep. Um, now, it's the, faster than Usain Bolt, isn't it? It is a bit, it's a bit yeah. He's, he's not Just on falling, the Olympics theme. He's not falling that fast. Um, if he made a plane, though, he'd probably go as fast. Anyway, so now the deceleration that they, that they aimed for with this, and they reported roughly, was about 3.9 G. 
Mm-hmm. Now, g being the acceleration due to gravity, which is 9.8 metres per second per second. Um, so this makes – so 3.9g is the, the acceleration or the, the deceleration, like the negative acceleration that was slowing him down. Now, 3.9g, I don't know whether that sounds like a lot or not. Apparently, it, when, a it para- doesn't. No, when a parachute opens, it's about 3.5g, mm-hmm. 3.5g is the force from that. Um, things like uh, fighter pilots are routinely experienced like 9G. Mm. So 3.9G. can um, survive up to about 15. Yeah, so 3.9 shouldn't be too bad. So that when you go 3.9 times 9.8, which was the G, you get about 38 metres per second per second was the deceleration. So to work out the time, then we just take his initial speed, 53.6 metres per second, divided by the deceleration of 38, and we get 1.4 seconds is the time it took for him to stop. Oh, that's that's real quick. It is pretty quick, but that was yeah. giving you 3.9G, which, again, isn't too bad yeah. on you. Yeah. And um, now to work out the distance that you move in that time, that gets a bit more complicated. You have to remember your formula for high school. You know, if you have yeah. an acceleration of A or a de- you know, A and you have a time of T, then the distance you move at the constant acceleration is a half AT squared. Trust me, you can write this down on your piece of paper if you've got that out. Um, so we just plug <laughs> our numbers in and with our accelerate, deceleration of 38 metres per second per second and the time 1.4 seconds, the distance you would move over that time is 37 metres. Okay. Of course it is. 37 it is. metres. I did that math in my head. <clears throat> so what they did was they used a big net that was 60 metres above the ground. So there was room for error. And basically he came to a nice gentle stop over that. Um, 37 metres. Wow. So the mass, when you actually sit down, isn't actually that bad. As long as you have a big <laughs> enough net, you have enough mm. time to slow down, that 1.4 seconds is all you need, then you can survive it. And indeed he did. A big that, enough net and also a high net. enough well, high yeah. enough and also um, it's enough. under you. It's also strong. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right you have position. to hit the net. You do have to hit the net. It was a very strong net, of course. It was made of ultra-high molecular weight polyethylene. Of course it was. Which is like a type of plastic with really long polymer chains. So it makes cool. it really strong. Um, so, yeah, it's very strong. It doesn't stretch, though. So the actual um, cushioning was done by these kind of apparatus with air cylinders. So the net kind of on it and they pulled down these air cylinders, gave the compression, they helped him slow down. Apparently it's the thing they use in Hollywood all the time, as you know, you know, your Hollywood stunts. Um, so look, it's actually straightforward. The technology is straightforward. You just needed the big enough net. And yeah, like you said, you needed to hit the net. Um, their initial plan, when this was first proposed to him, the, um, the makers of the television program, because it was done for on TV, they wanted to use a, a slide. They suggested a 800-foot <laughs> slide, which is at 240 metres. Uh, and so you would have to hit the slide and the slide down to a stop. He said no to that, um, but then went away it's and like thought about how can him to dive into like a cup of water or something. I don't know. It's like Why imagine a slippery <laughs> slide, and you're supposed to got to dive down and hit that at the right angle, so you just go so sliding you, yeah. along and gently to a stop. Oh. Yeah. Imagine the TV though; it would make <laughs> great <laughs> that would TV. That would look good. But the net was a much better idea, and as we've seen, it um, is quite achievable, and obviously proved experimentally that was quite achievable. But so, Chris, do you reckon you're going to jump out of a plane without a parachute? anytime soon um i don't think i don't think that i could get a net big enough really um so no maybe i'll go if for the we slide source you, if yeah. we, oh yeah okay yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah next next episode you will I'll do it live on oh, radio how about ooh, i do that yeah sounds yeah. real okay, good stay tuned for that yeah science the final frontier These are the voyages of Lost in Science, our ongoing mission to explain strange new words, to seek out new science and new explanations, to boldly go where no radio has gone before. 
Okay, so we all know that the Earth's crust and upper mantle is broken up into tectonic plates. And there's about seven or eight major plates, and it's kind of debatable how many plates we, are, we have because the definition of a plate is still up for debate. So these are just like big segments of the crust that move around, like a, like a cracked Easter egg. Exactly, yes. <laughs> yeah. Mmm, delicious tectonic. <laughs> so chocolatey. So nice. So creamy. <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay, so in any case, we have seven or eight major uh, plates, and then we have many, many minor ones. And Australia sits on the Indo-Australian plate. Mm-hmm. This plate extends, if you'll uh, believe me, from India to mm-hmm. Australia. Right. Indo-Australian. Um, so it was formed about 43 million years ago, and it's thought to have been formed when um, the Indian plate and the Australian plates uh, collided and fused. Oh. Uh, so they were separate? Pardon? They were separate initially. They were, or so they fused at one point. So it, it may not have been like a massive co- collision, but they were, yeah, they were separate at one stage and then mm. they kind of fused together. Um, and so this happened 43 million years ago, this fusion, but there have been studies that suggest that they actually started to come apart and divide back into two or maybe even three plates about three million years ago. And um, so when I read this fact, it just got me thinking as to like how all of this stuff happens um, and and what that means for us. So we all know that it's not really unusual for uh, plates to move and for them to shift. There's all that pressure that's building up under the surface and then uh, the plates shift around. And when the pressure is released, we get things like earthquakes. um, And if the earthquakes are sort of... uh, in the ocean and things like that. We get things like tsunamis and as results of, uh, yep. of the earthquakes. And typically these tend to occur along the edges of the plates. So right. places that are um, situated along the edges tend to experience more earthquakes. So places like Japan or, or California are more prone to earthquakes because they tend to experience more of that pressure release than so, other places. So this is like they talk about the, um, the ring of fire, which is like around the Pacific. There's kind of, is there, is there one big plate with volcanoes and things around that? And earthquakes? Yeah, it's the Pacific Ring. Okay, Pacific yeah. Ring, is it? Or Ring? like, yeah, it's, it's probably like one of the smaller plates where then all of like there's it's kind of just it has a lot of those okay. edges, and so there's a lot of that pressure release and like yep. the volcanoes and things like right. that in that area. And then and they move around, and this is like how why the continents kind of fit together like a jigsaw puzzle because they yeah, so like way back when it was just yep. one massive, um, one massive. Pangea, sheet. I think yeah. it was, yeah. One massive Pangea sheet, and then that's broken up with, with all of these pressure and um, the, the continents effectively moved apart. Um, so with, um, with these earthquakes and things like that, there were two kind of, um, there were two large earthquakes that happened kind of recently, and this was back in 2012. So I'm not sure if any of you remember this, but there were um, the two large earthquakes that happened within the Indian Ocean near, um, near Indonesia. And these earthquakes were actually, they were, they hit much, much harder than they were expected to hit. So we weren't actually anticipating them to be as bad as they were, right. given um, where we had detected the um, earthquake coming from. Okay. And so, um, so a lot of researchers were really uh, intrigued by this and like, were really wondering why this earthquake hit so, hit so hard. And it actually turned out that the earthquake resulted in a quadruple fault rupture, which means that basically there were four existing fractures within the plate. And with the earthquake, with this pressure release, they were just torn apart. And um, and the earthquake was uh, classified as a strike-slip 
earthquake. So instead of it actually um, the edges moving up and down, they were pulled apart laterally. So they were opening up, and um, it was really surprising because this this rupture was actually so instead of occurring a- along the the edges of the plate as it's typically um, what typically happens when we have earthquakes, it actually occurred in the middle of the plate. So it really suggests that with this lateral opening and with the fact that this is occurring in the middle of um, the plate, that these two plates are coming apart mm. into the Indian mm. side of it and into the Australian side of it. Um, and so now the Australian side is starting to pull away from the Indian side, and it's actually moving at record speeds. It's the fastest moving continental tectonic plate in the world. How fast? So uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't actually know the speed of it, but um, Australia is shifting uh, shifting northwards 7 centimeters each year and then shifting to the west 11 centimeters each year. So that's that sounds like That sounds pretty quick. It is. It's yeah. the fastest moving tectonic plate. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually that if you think about land mass wise. You're not impressed, Claire? Uh, it explains why I've been walking a bit unsteady lately, you know. <laughs> I think, you know, falling over a lot. Yeah, just yeah. a bit unsteady. <laughs> Unfortunately, that doesn't like, just because the Australian plate is moving and being quite progressive. Unfortunately, our politics in Australia is not, is not keeping up. Not really Ooh. as Ooh. progressive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Bam. Yeah. Bazinga, I guess. <laughs> so I think I think Claire's got a bit a bit on her mind at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, but okay. Anyways, the uh, the thing with the Australian um, plate is that it's actually starting to collide with um, islands in Southeast Asia, and um, projections show that the northwest of Australia is actually going to get caught in this collision, and then Australia is going to rotate and then collide against Borneo and. South um, China, and then it's going to like merge with Asia. This is a very slow moving. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I know. Okay, so it's sounds... <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's going to be this massive like apocalyptic like. Oh, so many years. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I know it's, it might sound scary or like yeah, scary, but it's going to take like tens of that of millions of years for it to happen. So I don't really think we have much to worry about. up to the Rio Olympics, there's been a lot of talk about drug cheating and performance-enhancing drugs. So to help us see the science through the syringe-filled world of dodgy drug doping, we have a special guest with us today, Dr. Oliver Jones, Senior Lecturer in Analytical Chemistry at RMIT. Welcome to Lost in Science, Ollie. Oh, thank you very much for having me, Claire. So, Ollie, with the Russian athletes that have been kicked out of Rio, it seems like drug cheating in elite sports is becoming commonplace now. Is drug cheating a new thing or is it an old thing? Uh, oh, certainly not. I mean, you go back to the, well, it depends what you call cheating. Um, you see people have been using stimulants and aids to help them run faster or fight longer or whatever for a, a, back until, since the Roman times and the ancient Greeks. Really? Oh, yeah. Wow, what were they using like back in the Roman times? Well, Roman gladiators would use caffeine um, and they'd also use something known as strychnine, which actually is quite a potent toxin, but if you have a small amount of it, it actually acts as a little stimulant. So the oh, idea right. was to make the fight go a bit longer. So this isn't a new thing? 
Oh, no, not at all. And in fact, even if you look at sports like cycling, um, they've had a number of drug problems over several years. Yes. Uh. Yep. And it doesn't seem like it's uh, going anywhere. Uh, no, unfortunately, it doesn't. <laughs> so to get an overview of the state of affairs right now, what, um, in your opinion, as an analytical chemist, what are the most common types of drugs and doping um, that's happening in sports and the types of testing that are currently performed on athletes? Uh, well, that's a good question. It seems to go in circles. If you go back to the 80s, which is probably one of the earliest Olympics I can remember, it was all steroid hormones and test- mm. you know, synthetic testosterone and so forth and nandrolone and various other things. And then it went um, past that and we've gone into blood doping, and so right. EPO and erythropoietin. Um, okay. And there's this sort of, I guess, difference between blood doping and performance enhancing drugs. Are they similar? Are they are they different? Well, it's it's a sort of yes and no. So the dope well, it depends how you mean by doping, but the this, the compounds that you might take to increase performance, such as a steroid, are usually external compounds that yep. are not naturally occurring that have an effect in the body. EPO is basically you're you're using synthetic EPO, which is a hormone that increases blood uh, production. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're trying to you're trying to stimulate the body's natural production of chemicals to an unnaturally high level. Okay, right. So. That makes it harder to track because how do you know that it's not a just a naturally high level? Um, right. And that's quite common these days, isn't it? The EPO. Yeah. Uh, EPO seems to be, uh, it's going down a little bit because testing's got better for it. But uh, if you look at Lance Armstrong, for example, EPO was one of the things he was alleged to have taken. Um, right. And it seems to have been endemic in cycling in particular for a, a fairly long period of time. Yeah. Um, I guess it's one of those things that as soon as the testing catches up, then the um, the amount of drug that you see um, coming through as positive results goes down because you know it's one of those or they're always chasing their tail with the testing and the oh yes the, you see new, new things come in as tests develop for the old things so for example EPO sort of fallen off a bit and now we've got the peptides in the footballers and there are another thing that are basically designed to, to boost natural muscle production and and so forth um, and now we've got methods for those so you know the things new things come along. And then sometimes you see a resurgence of old things. So, for example, cobalt in horse racing has, has popped up again recently. And what does co- cobalt do in horses? Well, <laughs> that's a good one. <laughs> Apparently, it actually doesn't actually do an awful lot. In pe- it's supposed to induce um, hypoxia in the body, so it increases your EPO count, so you get a higher red blood cell count at the end of it. Which means uh, you can carry which more, means you carry more oxygen. oxygen. So it's similar to doing high-altitude training mm-hmm. um, where you go to an area high up where there's low oxygen so your body makes more red blood cells and then you come back down to sea level and you can carry more oxygen. Cobalt doping improves performance in humans. It may not necessarily do the same thing in horses. Right. Um, however, the idea is you boost the red blood cell and the horse can run faster. Um, and we saw only last year there were people banned for cobalt doping in horses. Right. Because too much uh, and the horse sort of sweats, shakes and, and can potentially die. That's something that I don't often think of when I think of um, doping in, in sports. It's um, doping of animals. Uh, yes, and of course the animals can no way give consent. So yeah. it's, uh, it's potentially a bit more serious. Absolutely. Um, a number of horses have died where they've found high cobalt levels in the blood afterwards. Yes, and it's, you have to think if you... If you increase the amount of red blood cells in your blood, the blood becomes thicker and more viscous. Your body has to work harder to pump it around. And if you're exerting yourself, that increases the stress. So you put a lot more pressure on your circulatory system. And, and your heart, especially, I imagine, to be able to pump Yes, that. yes, exactly. You're putting more stress on that whole system. Um, yep. And a number of very fit young cyclists have died because they've, it's been linked to EPO use because they have this much thicker. And coming to sort of the, um, the actual 
testing of the drugs, is there a consistent, I guess, sort of arsenal of tests that are used across different sports? Uh, yes, those tests have to be approved by the sports governing body and they have to be um, proven over a period of time. So you can't actually just invent a new test, mm-hmm. for example, then go and use it um, in a court of law. It has to be approved and it has to be um, tested a number of times. Um, but if I want to test for EPO in a cyclist, it's the same test that you would do for a footballer or a sailor or a football player or whatever it is. All right. So everybody knows exactly what the tests are and how they work. Everyone's on the same page about that, or is there some sort of, yeah, some sort of secrecy that um, that the World Anti Doping Agency can have? Well, it's it's not really because you have to if you're going to sue someone or potentially say you can no longer race. It's all it's it's legal system, so you have to have it easy and out in the open. And if you go on to um, say the American Anti Doping Agency site, they've got really good information about how the sample is taken, what happens to it after it's taken, what the system, um, what test is used. If you look into it, it's not too hard to find that information. If you're not a chemist or scientifically trained, some of the jargon might be a bit hard to understand. But there seems to be, there's an awful lot of science goes on on the other side, on the cheating side. Um, Stephen Dank was in the papers again just a couple of weeks ago, allegedly, uh, for he's about to spill the beans on what had been going on. So it's all a bit of, a, as you say, a bit of a catch-up sometimes. You get some scientists working to detect it and some scientists working to create new things that can't be detected. It seems that the testing is the best that it's ever been. So, I mean, how is it that the athletes are still evading drug testing? I know with the Russians it involved intricate passageways and people swapping urine samples and that Mm. sort of thing. Does it have to be like that? Or are there any other sort of favourite stories of yours for how people have sort Mm -hmm. of evaded drug tests? Oh, yes. One of the good ones was was using washing powder in in urine samples, for example. So if you were after testing uh, for protein levels, which might be a marker of EPO use or something like that, what they used to do was, what cyclists allegedly did, was you'd take some washing powder, which had, or biological washing powder in particular, which has protease, proteases, which are protein-degrading enzymes in. And that just looks like a white powder, which cyclists might have, you know, to keep their hands dry. For example, a lot of them use chalk to keep their hands dry if they're sweating. You would basically lick your finger, dip it in the, the enzyme, which you'd have secreted somewhere on your body. And, and then you'd have to urinate over your finger into the collection cup. Um, oh. And then that would break down all the protein in, in the urine sample. Yeah. yeah. So then they would be looking for one particular type of protein and it wouldn't be there. Uh, yes, yes. And they actually spotted this form of cheating by someone realised there's no protein at all in the urine sample, which would, would be, uh, you know, <laughs> indicate the person was very ill indeed. Because, you know, <laughs> um, once they saw that, they realised that someone had put, they put two and two together and worked out what had been going on. So there is this sort of catch up that's always being played. Do you think it's just going to become part of the sport, taking drugs and testing for drugs? Do you think there's ever going to be a solution? I doubt it because there's so much money involved and the differences between first and second place at the moment, you know, there'd be Mm. thousands or millions of a second, but nobody remembers who comes second. Mm. Um, So as long as there's pressure and money in the system, there's always going to be pressure for people to do something to get the edge on, you know, the competition. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much for coming in and telling us a little bit about what is happening in the world of performance-enhancing drugs, especially in the lead-up to the Rio Games. So thanks so much, Ollie. No, no, thanks for having me. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, 
Uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook. Uh, and if that's not enough Lost in Science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get Lost, Lost in Science! science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.